Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint interview series. Uh, really excited to have you here with us today or whenever you might be watching this. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, I started the Alliance uh, about two years ago and started it to raise awareness about the issue of restraint and seclusion in schools across the nation. Of course, we're interested in a host of other issues, including the school to prison pipeline and all sorts of disproportionate discipline, suspensions, expulsions, uh, restraint, seclusion, corporal punishment, and trying to raise awareness and change and, and positive change. Our mission is to educate the public and to try to connect people together who are interested in dedicated to changing minds, laws, policies, and practices so that restraint and seclusion are reduced and eliminated uh, as practices across in schools across the nation and really beyond. Uh, our vision is to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. And uh, today I am very excited to have Dr. Lori Desatels joining us for a very special interview. One of the things that's really exciting about this one for me is that we've been doing these events for not quite a year now, but Lori is our first guest to come back for a second appearance. So we're really excited to have her. Uh, we're going to be talking about her new book uh, in just a moment, and uh, this will be a open interview. So we're going to be asking lots of questions, but we're also going to be asking you that are watching this today to give us questions that you might have. So you can put those in the chat at any time, and we'll try to get to those as we go through the interview today. Uh, so today's event, uh, just so you're aware, is being recorded. So this will be recorded and it will be made available on Facebook, YouTube, and also as an audio podcast. So uh, you have plenty of ways to uh, go back and, and share it or listen again if you'd like to. So as usual, uh, I have a co-host with me here today. Uh, I've got the amazing Beth Tolly here, who is part of our team. And uh, before we introduce our guest, uh, let me tell you a little bit about Beth, and she will then introduce our guest, Lori. So Beth is our Director of Educational Strategy for the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, I've been working with Beth for probably a year and a half now. Time time flies, right? Um, and we've, we've been working together to try to, again, reduce and eliminate these practices. Uh, Beth retired in 2018 from a leadership position in Virginia's lead agency for early intervention for infants and toddlers. And, uh, you know, that retirement was fortunate for us because uh, we've been trying to keep Beth uh, hard at work doing lots of things since she retired. Um, and just amazing work. Uh, you've probably seen some of her articles in the past uh, you know, the problem with behaviorism. She's given some amazing presentations. Uh, and she's got experience, of course, as a parent, a grandparent, um, you know, of children who have had, you know, behavioral challenges. And that's fueled a passion within her to improve the lives of children and their families through education, mutual support, and advocacy. So I'm always honored to have Beth here with me. And Beth, welcome. Thank you. And thank you for such a nice introduction. I was thrilled to find uh, the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint, because it was such a nice fit for the uh, advocacy work that that I am compelled to do. So um, I have the pleasure of introducing Lori, who, uh, when I found her, I was, oh, I was thrilled. <laughs> and even more thrilled when I got to meet her. She's so uh, genuine and so um, eager to share what she knows. And she knows an awful lot 
uh, that sounds bad, awful lot. She knows a lot of really good stuff. And she knows how to apply it, and she is such a great teacher. So let me tell you a little bit about Lori for those who didn't meet her before. Um, as far as I'm concerned, Lori put Butler University on the map. At least for me, I'd never heard of it before. But she is she's an uh, associate professor. I think that's right. Yeah, I know assistant professor. I don't know which is which, but anyway, assistant professor in their school of education, and she teaches applied uh, educational neuroscience to graduates and undergraduates in a certificate program. It's one of the to me. It's a program that should be replicated in every single university and college and community college because what she's teaching to me is the baseline of what everybody we would all be doing better not just with our kids but with our own interpersonal interactions if we all um, had this level of, of understanding that Lori is graciously sharing with with Luke. she's so generous in her sharing so let me see what else I want to say. The other thing she does is not just talk about it, but go into the classrooms and practice what she's um, teaching about. And, and I think through that, you of course learn through that in, as, as far as how practical things are. So we're grateful for that too. Um, she has written several books and the most recent one is what's gonna be a main focus of today. And it's her, this is gonna show up backwards. No, it shows up rightwards. Uh, how do you do that, guy? Because every other time I do it, things are backwards. Anyway, it's the connection. What'd you say? Oh, you I said it's magic. Oh, oh magic. <laughs> it's uh, com connections over compliance, rewiring our perceptions of dis discipline and experience. So um, I'm going to turn it over um, to you, Lord. Well, I guess you want to welcome her also, Guy. And then we'll Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so so thank you for the introduction, and and Lori, th you know, thank you for joining us here. You know, as I mentioned uh, earlier, um, you know, you're you're our first guest to come back, and I think that's a good thing to have a guest that'll come back. But but as as Beth said, um, you know, you are doing amazing work, and you know, cannot ask to meet a a kinder person that is that is really trying to make positive change. So we really appreciate you know, the ability to, to work with you and, and spread the great things that you're doing. So thank you so much for joining us today and uh, welcome. Thank you and, and both of you for such a warm, inviting and kind introduction. Um, yeah, just, just kind of balm to my soul as we begin today. So thank you. Absolutely. So we, we wanted to focus today on your new book and Connections Over Compliance. Uh, rewiring our perceptions of discipline, and, and I've got to say, the moment I heard the title of the book, uh, "Connections Over Compliance," it resonated with me so much because I think you know, and Beth would agree, you know, this is what we've been saying for so long: is the the importance of relationships and the importance of connection. Yet we we often live in a world that's very compliance based, and you know, whether it's in you know the classrooms or or you know in law enforcement, often these compliance based approaches have really um, really bad, um, you know, uh, outcomes and, uh, you know, for, for our kids and, and whatnot. So I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about the book overall, uh, you know, about connections over compliance and, and, you know, what you were, um, what you were looking to achieve when you set out to write that book. Well, it, it gives me tears actually, you know, to think about its origin. Um, and I think, as you asked that to me this afternoon, I feel that we as a society and community and school districts, 
we are forgetting oftentimes that we're living systems and that living systems thrive on connection. And when we are isolated and when we are secluded in our environments, then that wears and tears us down. Um, you know, our autonomic nervous systems are, and just our brains and bodies are constantly communicating to one another. There's this beautiful bi-directional highway. And what I'm learning every day is that um, without that connection, that secure connection, we struggle. And I think this is why COVID has been so hard for so many people um, with the physical isolation and, and with that, um, again, chronic unpredictability. But the book evolved from all of my years. And now, now I can say there are many, many years in education. Um, as a former teacher, I taught children with the classification of emotionally disturbed, which I can't stand that. I mean, I just, I don't like it. Um, mm -hmm. It's not accurate. These are kids who come and carry in pain into our schools and trauma. And I was a former school counselor and, and then, um, you know, a mom of three. And our oldest son, um, out of the womb, struggled with significant anxiety and and some behavioral challenges just growing behavioral challenges so i think i come today from an educator's perspective but also a parent so the book is really written um, from many hats and that's why i'm just i'm so excited about it i i was um writing it during the finishing the book during the end during the beginning of this pandemic. So that was quite challenging. My publisher and I kept throwing it back and forth um, across the airwaves because so much was happening as this as this pandemic unfolded and I was completing the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I look at the book, the things, and when I looked at all the work that you did, but the book pulls it in one place. Um, when I, I first met you, it was, just one of those, uh, what do you call it? Um, things that happen, happenstance. Uh, I can't remember the word for it, but anyway, um, I'm just leading for you guys to know what's going to happen when you get my age. But anyway, um, I met you at a place I was that I wasn't planning to be because I was subbing for someone. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I've been trying to put all together because I, I had, by then I had done a lot of research and mm -hmm. uh, your, your approach is so just like you said now about the word emotional disturbance that there are people who will not go um, through the edu the IEP process because they don't want that label. Mm -hmm. um, the labels are harmful. There's a lot about the, I, the IDEA, the individuals with education with disabilities Education Act that needs desperately to be updated. But mm -hmm. in the face of it, you are working with what we have now. You are taking what we have now and you are showing us how you can help a whole class with ratcheting down their stress. Because one of the things that I learned from, from you and from Bruce Perry and from um, Steve Porges is that so many of these behaviors that have been labeled in ways that make them sound as though they're always intentional. 
So much of it is based on stress uh, detection systems in the brain that are just so high that kids go off into stress reactions. So how did you learn that? How did you get to there? What brought you to the point that you got it and then you translated it? Well, I feel as if that has evolved for many years because working with children and adolescents that were struggling emotionally, there always felt to be a gem or a treasure that I was missing. There was a brilliance about these children. There was um, this just really very, there was a sensitivity. And, um, and I, that, is, that is the word I wanna stress, this beautiful sensitivity that we weren't acknowledging. And so I started to really research um, about brain and body um, states, looking at the nervous system. And certainly I am not a neuroscientist. And for those neuroscientists that are watching today, I know that we can be very schematic when we talk about the stress response systems and we talk about brain and body connection. But for educators and parents, I think that it's so important and critical for us to understand the why beneath the behaviors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and so I began with chapter, the opening chapter um, is an overview, but chapter two is about educator brain and body state, because we've got to be the adults have to understand the why before we begin to discipline and, and even to interact with children and youth that test us, that challenge us um, in very sensitive ways and that tap into our vulnerabilities. So um, I think that there, the science, and, and it's interesting, yesterday I left the school where I'm co-teaching this semester. I'm in a large district in which I was not when I was with you the first time in Lawrence Township in Indianapolis. And I got to spend the entire day yesterday with first grade, second grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, and sixth grade. And I moved into each classroom modeling how we begin to help our children and youth understand the why. And, and I cannot tell you the excitement and the relief and the empowerment that they feel. And I see it in real life, real time. In fact, right here at my desk, within an hour and a half after being with the first grade classes, they drew pictures of the brain, they drew pictures of me, they were asking about their hippocampus. These are six-year-olds. They were asking about the amygdala. It was just, and it happens every time, that was not an anomaly. That's that's really great. Um, you know, th th there's so much you just said, and, and of course, you know, Beth, Beth and I had this list of questions that we had scripted out to ask you. But but as you talk, there's so many things that are coming to mind. One of the things that, that you just said is is understanding the why, understanding what lies beneath the behavior. And and, and that shouldn't be something that um, that shouldn't be something that surprises us, right? To figure out the why. But but I found in talking to to countless people across the the country that have had children that have been restrained, secluded, suspended, expelled, that have had children that have had difficulty in, in school settings, that very often, and, and I experienced this myself, uh, in education, 
there's no concern about the why, you know, that, that sometimes we're using these classical behaviorism lenses of functions of behavior. And, and the thought is, well, we don't care why this happens. We just want to change it. And, and there's so much importance to what's going on beneath the surface. And, you know, um, like like Beth, you know, I've I've had a tremendous amount of opportunity to learn more about the impacts of the on the brain and trauma. Um, but why do you think that is? Why do you think that there's still a lot of prevailing, um, you know, wisdom out there that doesn't care about the why? And how do we change that? How do we get people to realize how important it is? Because, you know, once you understand, like, the impact of trauma and how that affects the brain, you understand the error of some of the approaches that are commonly taken. So how do we begin to make that shift? Well, I don't know if there's one definitive answer, but I do believe this. I feel as if this pandemic has created conditions in adult brain and body state where the adults can begin to feel some of this trauma and adversity that many of our children are carrying in. So that, um, and I, I see it. I see our, I see my colleagues in a shutdown, immobilized, dissociative state. I see them in fight flight. And so when you can begin to understand what's happening in your own brain and body, that helps to, um, you know, to create that empathy, you know, for what some of our children and adolescents are carrying in. I also feel we have to begin, Guy and Beth, with the adults. Mm. When I can experience, and this is what I'm doing right now, when I can understand that like I can experience how four deep breaths change the way I feel, holding a hand warmer in my hand, touching my cheeks. And so I went to the restroom in yesterday during the middle of this hectic day. And I remember lingering in there and I, I'm aware now. And I ran my hands under warm water and I was enjoying the sensation. I was rushed yesterday. I was breathless. I was working super hard. And I took that moment in the bathroom to just run my hands under that warm water. My point is this. When we as the adults begin to experience a sense of calm and understand how that feels in our bodies, then that has contagion for the children and adolescents that we sit beside. That's where we begin. Right. Because an escalated adult is not going to help de-escalate a child no. who's having a hard time. Absolutely not. Yeah. It, no, go yeah, ahead. It's one thing to say that, you know, now it's becoming for me a cliche, a dysregulated adult cannot regulate a child. Okay. So cognitively we get that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but do we get it experientially? Do in the heat of the moment, are we invested enough and committed enough to really create awareness in our own brains and bodies so that we can make a shift. And and so the shift doesn't happen through language or words or thought. It happens through sensation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, yeah, go, please. Well, what you're saying is when I look at who it is that we need to convince that there are better ways uh, than rewards and consequences or uh, whatever, um, there, one of the things that I see in the instructions, I even see it, I'm, I'm reading more about it now, even with all this focus on social emotional skills, skills learning, skills training, is that there still has not permeated the um, leaders 
what they're putting out there about it's not all about what you can think and learn. It's not all about what you can teach. You can only teach if there's readiness in terms of body, brain and body state. And so that was one thing that I struggle with right now because uh, all this great stuff is coming out. And I look at it and I say, you're missing the point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the kids aren't going to get anything out of that if they're not first, um, you know, it, feeling safe and, and soothed and, and uh, valued and, and so forth. Um, the other thing before I go is that I, to me, I think the biggest thing I, I got as I was learning, and I started this path from two perspectives. I still had about, I don't know how long, I thought it was nine months, it might have been almost two years of my working career when I started down this intensive study. Mm -hmm. uh, and I started it because of, of problems my granddaughter was having that were mirroring what my boys had had. And I, uh, I went both routes. I went through looking at the academic information, the, the stuff that was out there for teachers and stuff that was out there for parents. And the biggest take home was you have to get hold of yourself. You have to recognize, you have to put a block between that, what happens and your reaction so that you can respond instead of react. And it, it's not an easy thing to change so many years of experience, but uh, it's remarkable what happens when you do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and you, the other thing that's really challenging is, our educators right now are their to-do list and what they are having to contend with, with virtual and tracing and testing and hybrid. And, and yeah. it, you know, it's, it's a list that is overwhelming to the system, to the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so I, one of the ways that we can really, when Guy asks, how do we begin to make this shift? Not only do we focus on the adult brain and body, but we create a regulated group of bodies in a building. Um, Resma Minicum says in his book, uh, My Grandmother's Hands, he talks about settled bodies and unsettled bodies. Hmm. We know that in you know a school that has very unsettled adult bodies, there's going to be contagion hmm. in children. And so, you know, how can we build connection and relationship between the adults? One of the things that I've been thinking about is um, how important it is for a school to have an outreach template for the adults in the building. So that the first grade team, I shared this um, in an interview last night, a first grade team, you know, we do a survey and they say, okay, what are the needs? We've put a survey out in our schools. What are your medical needs right now? What are your food needs right now? As the adults in the building, what are your safety needs that are not being met? Um, you know, what are your food needs? Any, you know, anything kind of like a school's Angie's list, um, but created by educators for educators. Mm -hmm. Because when we feel felt, when human beings feel felt, then we begin to return like, as I love what Deb Dana says, who works with Dr. Stephen Porges. Deb says, our bodies and brains know how to get home. Mm. And, and, and that is what I want for our children and youth. I want adults to understand that it's not always our agenda, that we need to follow the child's agenda. 
And you know, isn't it interesting that so many behavioral challenges are not only they're not only nervous system challenges and physiological challenges, but they start over a sandwich. Mm. They start mm. over a hat. They start over a an eraser. And that is where we can also begin to shift. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the power struggle dynamic is, is such a huge dynamic. I mean, I can look at the, you know, instances that happen with my son being restrained and secluded. And it, it's when a, you know, a, a power struggle ensues. And, you know, um, you bring up such an important point about the regulated adult, because it's very easy to overlook that. As, as adults, you know, oftentimes we put way too much emphasis on what the child needs to do, how the child needs to comply, um, you know, what they need to do differently. And, and beyond that, there's little collaboration. And I mean, you know, I, I know we've talked about approaches where, you know, you put an emphasis on relationship and collaborating with kids. And, and I think amazing things happen when you, when you build relationships. And, and that's why, you know, I, I look at probably the roots of your success and so many others. Um, you know, Beth, Beth has heard me say this many times, but, but my three R's in education are, relationship, 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 because relationships, you know, make us feel safe, make us feel seen, make us feel heard. And, and, you know, those are the prerequisites to, to being able to learn. So I think that's so critical, but, you know, you, uh, the work of, of people like professor Andrew McDonald, you know, others mm -hmm. that are focused on that idea of like, what can we do? How do we reflect on our own behavior? And I, I learned that as a parent myself. And, and I can tell you that, I made mistakes before I learned that. I, I, I you know. I, Are you still not making mistakes? I, I'm always making mistakes. Okay. If anybody knows that, it's probably. I just want to check <laughs> <in>. <laughs> you know, But, but you know, you can re reflect and realize the things that you've done in the past that haven't worked. But, but sometimes we find that in systems and education, you know, some of these things continue to be perpetuated as part of the culture. And it's about compliance. It's about you know, we're, we're going to suspend away this problem or expel away this problem right. or restrain and seclude. So that shift is so important. Um, and I love what you, what you say about that. You made a point in the book, I remember, that really stuck out to me. Um, and I think you made it a couple of times, but you made the point about how we all do our best work for the people we like. And mm -hmm. then, you know, the, the importance of that relationship. So I'd love to hear more from you on that in terms of like building those relationships as an educator that's that's been doing this. You know, what what to you has been key to help you make that shift from putting a label on a kid as a bad kid or a behavior kid or whatever it may be to realizing the special things that a child might bring in building those relationships. What helped you to, to build relationships with students that you've had over the years? Well, I, I think that's why I'm still in the classroom, because if I were not in the classroom, I would have very little to say to anybody today. Um, I, I've got to experience it myself. And I did as a young teacher, um, as a school counselor. But I, I think that, you know, we know that kids in stress are hyper vigilant in how they read adults. I have seen that a million times. And I, I see it with my own son today. He lives oftentimes in still as a 28 year old today lives in toxic stress. And he will say, mom, what's wrong? What's wrong? Hmm. What, and I'll say, you know, and he'll, he'll, he'll hear my tone over the phone or he will watch my face or the way I posture or the way I gesture. So the reason that I'm bringing that up is when we think about the power of relationships, 
again, it goes back to a check-in, you know, with, with me, you know, I am being read accurately by the kids who are challenging me the most. Wow. And, and it's really interesting because we do want just like in every area of our life, we want the medicine to make us well. We want the quick fix. We want the solution mm -hmm. and to linger in process is very hard for us as human beings. The process is hard. Um, it's, we want something definitive. And that is why I feel our discipline protocols and policies are <clears throat> beginning to shift because we are seeing the data. We, you, if you look at the district looks at their data, as I said, I think in our first interview, we don't see a whole new group of kids every week in off, having office referrals in school suspensions, out of school suspensions. These are the same children. These are the same youth. And we do get compliance for a little bit, right. but we're not getting that sustainable change. And, and Rita Pearson was the person who said, we work for people we like. And that's one of my, she said, we'll even do crazy things like algebra problems for people that we like, you know, just, just um, we'll do it. And, and so it's, it's really the science beneath the relational piece, again, is that not only is the brain experience dependent and responsive, but it is a social organ. Right. And, and that's just critical for us. So when we begin to understand the science beneath it, at least for teachers, there tends to be more buy-in right. when you put the science there. Yeah. Well, and, and you make this point a lot, which is our, our brains are wired for relationship. We are wired to, to um, you know, co-regulate. We are wired to, to work together. And, you know, when I think about um, practices like seclusion, you know, that you have a ch child that's become dysregulated, is having a hard time. And the, the answer is to put them alone in a room against their will. I can't imagine anything more terrifying, but, but certainly there, there's nothing about that that's going to help a child to regulate. You know, we, we need a calming presence to do that. Right. Um, it helps the adult. I right. mean, it, you know, temporarily, not right. really. But right. I mean, that's why we do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to take a quick second because uh, we, we've, we've been going for about a half an hour and Beth and I will easily fill all of our time with questions uh, because I could see um, in, in Beth's face and I know my own list that we have lots of things to talk about. But I do want to remind people that are watching, we've had a number of great comments. Uh, Laura Williams has been providing some comments, Kim Woolridge and others, um, that if you would like to ask some questions, um, feel free to put them in the chat and we'll try to get some of your questions uh, interspersed with the questions that we're going to be asking as well. So uh, if you're out there and you're listening live, uh, feel free to put your questions in. And with that, Beth, I will let you get to your next one because I could see it was ready to jump. Yeah. <laughs> I, keep, I keep trying to. Um, there, there were a couple of things that you said, Lori, and also uh, you, Guy. Um, the thing about Guy, you said you did better once you recognize how you needed to look at yourself and self-reflect and how you're thinking, which has made a, a humongous difference with me, though I always perceived myself to be kind and gentle. But when I recognized, uh, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm not as, you know, I'm letting myself get uh, react instead of respond. Um, so a couple things about that is um, kind of recognizing what are the things that trigger me? So trying to learn that, but also um, realizing and seeing the results of what happens when you repair. It's not about doing things perfectly. It's about keeping 
keeping your child in mind and doing meeting their needs. Um, and then when you make a mistake, being able to repair. And what I found for me was probably one of the most um, challenges was all these expectations in my head of the way things were supposed to be, whether they were real or not, but how I was raised, not necessarily my parents, but the society and um, experiences of and I would make them up. I, I love Brene Brown, who says that story you make up in your head, that I'm expected to do this, and I'm expected to discipline them, and I'm expected to make sure this happens. And I cannot fathom a teacher coming into the class and having this child that's out of control and knowing, you know, I got to get his grades up. I got to get the rest of these students. The expectations are out of control. Um, in terms of what teachers have on them. And often what happens is you end up in getting into these battles of people against people when I think what we've got to do is, is somehow show ourselves all to be on the same side, that we are all learning this and, and working together for the kids. And so um, anyway, those are my thoughts. Well, and you make such an excellent point because part of rupturing the other side of that coin is repairing because none of us will ever do it perfectly ever. I mean, I'm learning as a mom still. I'm making mistakes as a mom. I'm learning as a teacher. I am making mistakes as a teacher. And this is the repair is what really sticks too, because that is not only modeling, but it's providing a child or an at or an adolescent with an authentic response that literally pulls in the brain and body. You know, when you can say, I am so sorry, I just screwed up mm -hmm. and I need you. We need each other. What can we do to work through this? Mm -hmm. Questions are powerful. And one of the things that is so significant, and you make such another, you know, fat, you've got a classroom of 30 and you've got two kids who are externalizing pain. They're acting out. They're, you know, they're showing, they're presenting defiance and aggression and, 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 you know, it's a domino effect. It's Pandora's box. But when we really start preventatively, when we really start with our, the minute a child walks in with the morning meeting, if we call that brain aligned bell work, that's discipline on the front end. And that's what this book is about. It, it, it's about tier one practices. You know, when we are intentional about our procedures and, and intentional about how we connect with kids, then we are really, I like what Daniel Pink says. He says, we're pre-oping, you know, we're, we're preparing ahead of time. And we know that no one can access the cortex when you are in survival state. Right. Right. And it just, I don't, you know, you can teach the best lesson. You can do it all morning long. But if that kid walks in rough, then we've got to meet them in brain and body state. That's where I meet them with a hand warmer. I meet them with movement. I meet them with filling up my water bottle. I meet them with letting them have my phone. Some of you will die hearing me say that. <laughs> you, can, you can have my phone and could you send this email to Dr. Candle for me? I'm distracting. 
I'm giving them purpose and autonomy. I can't tell you how many times I've done that. Holding my breath a few times. Maybe that's not well researched. So maybe we shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Your kids are welcome to email me anytime. So Okay, you know. thank you. <laughs> um, we do know that, I mean, distraction in that way, I mean, we can pre-op that conflict. Right, right. Again, that's, that's the point. I remember uh, Matthew Portell, we, we interviewed him, and, and he, of course, uh, is a principal of a trauma-informed school in tennis, outside of Tennessee. Uh, he was talking about distraction. He was talking about his socks. He has socks with pictures of his dogs on them. And he said, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've taken my shoes off and shown kids my socks, and that's yeah. been a distraction. That's That's been the spark to get a, a relationship and get things moving away from a negative uh, situation into something positive. You also, I, I remember something, you can help me out here, but something in the book, and you were talking about discipline, and you were talking about the word disciple, and you were talking about how the real meaning behind discipline is about teaching. But, you know, in, in our society, we want to associate discipline with consequence, with doing something to someone because of what happened. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because it, it, it really stuck with me, this whole idea that when we're talking about, you know, discipline, we're talking about teaching, we're talking about, you know, helping kids to be successful. Well, we're trying to really redefine discipline in our graduate certification class this semester mm. because we have a very limited um, you know, definition of discipline. And, and so I can't change the word. I can't take it out of the dictionary, but I'd like to. Um, <laughs> but I, but Did you I take think behavior with that? Yes, yes. Yeah, Maybe we can find some Reddit users that can help us do that. Maybe. I hear they're doing amazing things. Yeah. Okay, sorry <laughs> to interrupt you, but I just so identify with that. So no, and, yeah. So I just so I really want to broaden that piece. And when I think about discipline, for me, it's so it's twofold. It it when we when we think about discipline, it is sharing. It's kind of redefining and sharing our power with a student. And, and that's co-regulation. You know, our kids don't want our power. They want their own. But to get their own, we've got to share some of ours. And, you, that, you know, that's there was um, someone did this beautiful where they had a, a lighted or a lit candle and that represented their power. And a child wants power. So if a child has a candle and it's not lit, they take a little bit of light from your candle, but yours doesn't go out. And I, I shared this at one of my presentations. Um, and that to me is shared power. It changes the relationship of power and control and it levels the playing field. And when you feel not only felt, but you feel respected, mm -hmm. then that actually changes the chemical makeup in your brain and body. You know, you start, when it, you know, I love what Bruce Perry says. He says, we've got to access the cortex. Well, when you begin to open that portal for a child to feel not only felt, but valued and heard and empowered, then the chemical makeup in the body changes. And, you know, then we switch from cortisol and adrenaline secretion to some dopamine, some oxytocin, you know, some of those neurochemicals that activate um, our ability to problem solve and to emotionally regulate and to have sustained attention and strong memory. I mean, that is what creates learning. Mm -hmm. So I think when I, in, in most schools, and this is not going to happen overnight, and in homes, our homes, I parented very traditionally, but I think we've got to look at 
co-regulation as the middle backup system, which I talk about in the book. This is at the heart of building connection and always focusing on the brain and body connection. Mm. Because what we what most of us don't understand is that we hold pain and we for and I don't like the word behaviors, but we hold pain in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And so there's that quote, and I share this, if you want to know which way the wind is blowing, look at the sand. And if you want to know how a child is feeling, look at their body. And so when we really start to pay attention to that, then we can begin to create that emotionally available sanctuary of a space where we can create safety and connection with that child. And that's at the heart of discipline. And that mm-hmm. doesn't happen when a kid is saying, fuck you and running out of the room. That happens in our procedures and our routines. It becomes a, you know, it that's a, that's on the front end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that, that's really uh, you know, insightful. And I, I agree with you. I mean, if we can change the, the way we look at discipline, um, you know, I, I think that's really helpful. We promised to get some questions and comments. So Beth, before we get to your next one, let me just bring up a couple things that, that we've gotten here. Uh, I had this from Bobby who said, and, and this is about um, restraint, but said, hi, can you tell me if having two people either side of a child as therapy, so the child is sandwiched is seen as restraint? Um, um, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what you, I'll give you a chance to, to give your response. Um, and I'll just say that, you know, I- intent means a lot here, but, um, you know, it, it sounds to me like the two people, um, are sandwiching a child in, in, in a way to control them or keep them from moving, then absolutely I would call that restraint. But the, the more important point in my mind is, um, Words matter a lot, and sometimes the words that are used when we're talking about restraint and seclusion, uh, you can call a restraint a therapeutic hug, but if it, in, in fact, is intended as a restraint, it's still a restraint. You can call a seclusion room a calm room or a blue room or a cool-down room, but mm-hmm. if a child is put in there against their will um, you know, and refuse the ability to leave, they are probably being secluded. Uh, do, do you have any thoughts on, on this um, question? Well, I, I I agree with you, and um, not knowing the context of how it, how two adults are on either side of a child, we know that restraint, as you said, is not just always physical restraint. There's emotional restraint. Right, right. So if a child is feeling um, confronted and is feeling, you know, in some ways, um, not I I don't know if the word attacked is the right way, but th- but they're feeling um, powerless. Right. Um, in a situation that can also be a restraint. So it would it I think it's very contextual. But sure, it does sure. that does not sound like a real that does not sound to me like co-regulation. I'm just, uh, I'm absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, again, I agree. You need to know more details. I mean, uh, you know, I can imagine uh, my wife and I giving my daughter a hug and that being a sandwich, but, you know, not not in a therapeutic kind of way. I'm going to give a couple other comments here. We have one. Uh, uh, Laura's provided a number of comments. Said we oh, read. Yeah, we read Touching uh, Spirit Bear as a uh, parent-kid novel study. It's an amazing story of restorative justice and healing. Um, Thank you, Laura. She, Is that yeah, a she's a, she's <laughs> from Indianapolis. Yes. And we just had the most, her son worked with my daughter, Sarah, and I worked with her mom. And, and Laura has a heart for um, our children and our adolescents. Um, who are oftentimes struggling with some of these emotional and physiological challenges. 
Yeah. yeah. So here's made, made another recommendation just real quickly. Yeah. Um, made the recommendation of um, Come Home by Marianne Wolf. Yeah. Not familiar with that. Go ahead, yeah. Go ahead Beth. Thank you. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think of all the students you're teaching, and I think of what an impact that has. If each of those are going out to wherever it is they're working, we mm -hmm. are, this is how we get to the tipping point. It, mm -hmm. And the other thing I thought about that's related, completely related to that, is how you um, described that you were seeing this um, sensitivity and I forget the other word, was it brilliance? Uh, within really? the kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm in the rough, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think about that with autism where um, parents are uh, conditioned to think that, oh, your kid's got this awful disorder and you can expect this and that or whatever, or to think of it in terms of, oh my gosh, this child is going to do great things. They think so differently than we do. Think of what you can learn from them. And I think there's so much to um, how we are looking at people who are different from us and how if we go with a mindset of let's find the brilliance. Everybody's got brilliance. We just have to, some, some packages are harder to unwrap than others. Perspective is a huge piece of this work. And when I talk about perspective, it is, it encompasses, you know, I, I, I look at individual perspective and then I look at, you know, collective respect or perspective. And it's really how we frame and how we share and create a story um, that we keep telling ourselves. We are such creatures of habit and, mm -hmm. you know, our ways of discipline, honestly, we don't hesitate to accept new medical interventions. We don't hesitate to accept new technology, but you tell us to change the way we discipline and most of us put our, our, our feet down. And I think I say that in the book, um, you know, it was, it's a really hard thing for us to shift. Um, but, but understanding the science of that too, um, because we are, we are hardwired um, in ways where the more we have practiced certain behaviors and ways of being, those become part of our personality. Mm -hmm. um, those become our values. People think, well, what are beliefs? You right. know, I believe this and I believe that. Well, beliefs are practiced thoughts. They are mm -hmm. thoughts that we practice over and over and over again. Yeah, and, and of course that becomes culture. And, and culture, you know, you know, we ran into this when looking at the restraint and seclusion in our school district. I mean, they were using it at a far higher rate than, than other surrounding districts. And it had become part of the culture. When new staff were coming in, this is the culture that they were learning in terms of, this is how we work in certain situations. Um, so the culture is really, really critical. I want to hit another comment here um, from our, our good friend, Mickey uh, Marinelli, who is also uh, neuro, in the neuroscience uh, at the University of Austin. Uh, she says, uh, connection is so important, but sometimes so difficult when one has competing forces like electronics and drugs that take over. Uh, any thoughts on that in terms of, you know, um, how do you how do you build connection when when maybe children have found other ways to um, maybe it's maybe it's based on trauma or experience are, are finding other ways and, and not receptive to connection. How do you build those relationships? Well, that certainly isn't easy. And, and again, I'm going to go back to a process, but I feel in a situation because I, I think I'm speaking to that personally too, um, you know, as a parent, um, you know, looking at 
our challenges, you know, with Andrew. And um, I feel as if it is, you've got to be very aware and you've got to really look at timing. Um, because sometimes we try to, to connect when our kids are functioning from that survival. They're mm -hmm. distracted, they're not with us. So it really is interesting. I think timing and you know a presence um, is is really important, and I think that's true in the school too because it's hard. You know, we've got social media today that has become an adversity, um, and our kids in adolescent years are seeking out their peers. So I, I think for us, um, when we think about connection, I think we've got to really look at the timing and and to see and also check in with ourselves. You know, what is the mm -hmm. motive? What is the agenda here? Mm -hmm. You know, what can I accept? And what can I hear? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if, if there is some rejection or if I'm not feeling like I am connecting, you know, what do I do with that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I that's where it's, um, I'm just going to go off that a minute. I think that's where it's hard because if you have tried and you've worked so, so hard to be non-judgmental, to make mm -hmm. a connection, it's very easy to get in the mode of resenting. Um, and be defense of what's wrong with me, why can't I do this? But then resenting because it's resenting the kid for not responding to your wonderful. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that's again where you check in with yourself. You check in and, and we personalize it. You're right, Beth. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so I want to steer us back to the book for a few minutes. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, for those again that, that aren't familiar, Beth, can you lift up the book again? My, my copy is electronic, and I don't have my 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 paper one there. Uh, great. Uh, so con connections over compliance. Um, let's talk again. You know, I know that having read that, that you know, it's really targeted at at parents, at educators, uh, at probably related professionals. It seems like there's a a pretty wide net there in terms of, of the people that would be would benefit from this. And certainly, one of the things I love about your work is that you know, you actually have these appendices that have all these resources for educators mm -hmm. and all these great things you can do. Um, so what what would you hope is kind of the, the big take home message from that book? What do you want people to to do or feel or, or respond to in terms of reading the book? So there are three. The very first one that so three big takeaways. Um, the very first one is to begin to understand the science. I think that is critical. And when, and I've seen this really have positive, it, it has a positive impact on families. It has a positive impact on educators, but more than that, it has a positive impact on kids. So there, um, I'm, I'm looking at how we have traditionally pathologized anxiety, depression, you know, the classification of emotionally disturbed, autism, um, autism spectrum disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity. We are so quick not only to label and classify, but we pathologize those. Mm -hmm. And so what I hope from this book is that we begin to understand that through these um, these uh, brain and body challenges, these brain and body states, that we can see them as protective factors, that our nervous system is always trying to repair and always trying, again, to, to find um, a little bit of that um, calm regulation. So the science is critical. The second thing that I hope 
everyone will take is from the very op the opening chapter. And that is behavior management is never about kids. It is always about the adult. Always. There is no exception. And so when and I don't like the word management, I would like to replace that with engagement, behavior engagement um, is what that is. It is always about um, it is always about the adult. And so um, and then the third thing I hope that is taken from the book is that connections over compliance is never adding to the plate. It is always the plate. You know, I want us to think about is, and that's why I have the resources in the back. It's like you walk through a buffet. What do you want to put on your plate? So would you, you know, because these resources provide the procedures and the routines that are brain aligned, they're relational and they're preventative. So um, I, since I've written the book, I just um, wrote 100 focused attention practices for adults and students. Um, and this was my gift to educators and to parents and to children for the new year. So it's on my website. Um, but there are these practices, and this is part of what I talk about in the book, and that's why the resources focused attention practices are um, ways that we can engage rhythm and breath and movement and pressure and heat or coolness and art to communicate to the body because that is where the pain lies. So, so let me, let me drill down a little further on that. It was okay. great, great response. And, and again, having, having read the book, um, the book delivers this and it's an amazing book. Um, you know, and I think that, um, you know, for, for any parent or educator or, you know, professional, there's so much that's useful there and, and that perspective. But but let me put you on the spot in terms of some of those practices. So we have, you know, I don't know how many people we have on right now watching this, but, you know, we talk about, um, again, kind of our own regulation and the importance of that. And you talk about some of these exercises. Can you give us a couple examples of some of the things that we can do as adults, you know, if we're beginning to feel that we're not regulated, how, how can we get in touch with our brain, brain body state? Can you give us a couple of examples? Yes. So um, first of all, we have to, what we're doing is we are for the administrators, a meeting with administrators in a building. So this is something they're sharing with teachers. So we're asking staff to think about what is pleasurable to you. What feels good to you? Does being outside feel good to you? Does taking a drive feel good to you? What, what do you do? Chewing gum. Do you have a project in the garage that you love to work on? What soothes and calms your nervous system? Is it sleeping? Is it taking a 20 minute nap? Is it chewing on, you know, is it is it crunching on something crunchy? Um, is it music? So, you know, we are, we, we actually are doing this right now. We are asking adults to come up with three regulatory practices for your own amygdala reset um, that feel good to you at home and then three in the building when you only have one minute or less. So, you know, what happens when you don't have any time? That might be somebody who, who can take a walk down the hall drinking a cold bottle of water there's a lot of research on splashing your face with cold water in the restroom um grabbing a piece of chocolate out of your desk drawer um just literally sitting just for a minute and giving yourself a container breath you know where you're just sitting and feeling yourself in that chair so we are doing in the moment regulatory practices 
you, for adults, like what can you do right then and there where you think you're just going to blow up? And then what can you begin to use for, um, you know, for some calm and, and soothing at home? Mm -hmm. So we're, we're asking them to commit to those. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. yeah. Is it an interesting, you know, I mean, you, you see these practices sometimes in place in relation to kids, but, but what you don't see is sometimes the adults taking some of these same strategies. So, you know, I can remember strategies like taking a breath or doing that for, for kids that are, but, but sometimes it's the adult that needs that same oh. thing, you know, taking a few deep breaths or whatever it may be. So, you know, I think those are really helpful. And we definitely want to point people to that uh, link that you've put out um, with strategies. Cause you know, again, there's so much we need to focus on for ourselves. It's not just about managing a child and, 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 and making them do a certain thing, but now, we've got to have our own state. Beth, can I, can I show ahead. you, can I show you a really popular one really yes, fast? Yes. I, I was hoping you would. I didn't want to put okay, you too much so, on the spot, but I was hoping for. All right. That. So there are focused attention practices that actually correlate to the vagus nerve which is the body and brains, what Dr. Stephen Porges and, and Mona talks about a lot. And so um, to put a break on the vagus nerve, um, it, there are lots of ways we can do that. We know breath, a five minute walk, taking three deep breaths, but also many of us, so get very, we get very tight. I don't know about either of you, but we get tight in our shoulders. And sometimes there's a buildup of calcium deposits that literally can prohibit good circulation to the brain. So this is a favorite one. So I love this, I do this all the time. So you make a figure eight with your head horizontally. So it's kind of like Stevie Wonder, you know, it's kind of like this, this is what we've been doing. Now you'll hear crackling and popping. I crack and pop a lot more than I used to. <laughs> I'm telling you here. And so we, do, I, I can't tell you how good that feels even doing that right now at the end of this interview. But um, there are, I, I just want everyone to know that you don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to work out for 90 minutes. It's literally two or three minutes of just, you know, focusing and being intentional about body regulation mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so it there it's just yeah it's exciting so those 100 focused attention practices are as much for adults as they are for kids mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a really important message because you know oftentimes i think that the message is oh well here's some things that we can have the kids do uh when in fact realizing that that our our you know our days or an educator's day can be full of all sorts of stress and and uh challenges yeah. um so that's really great um, yeah. one other question, then I'll, I'll, I'll let Beth throw another one at you. Um, so thinking about what, one of the things I love about what you do is you're actually teaching kids and adults about their brains and about understanding their brain. And, and, you know, this is, you know, I mean, there's so much we've learned over the last several decades about the brain, but I love the fact that you're bringing that to the classroom. So let me ask you, you know, let's say that you've walked into a classroom for the first time and, and you're, you're beginning to make that connection. You're beginning to teach kids about their brain. What, what are some of the things that you do to, to help kids to understand their own brains and how they work? Well, so I am creating lesson plans for this. And, and, and so, and again, we, what, what the beauty of teaching kids about their neuroanatomy is that they want to know why they have bad dreams. Why do I wake up four times during the night? Why do I have headaches? I can't answer any of those. And I tell them, so we, so the kids begin to do their own research. 
So that is one byproduct that has been fascinating. They write their questions on post-it notes and then they become their, they become neuroscientists. I mean, they begin to research it mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and they, and here's the other cool thing is that a teacher, you don't need to be a neuroscientist to teach this. The kids love that you don't know. So let me give you an example. I'm with first grade yesterday and sixth grade. Here's how we began to, neither of these classes had ever heard me. So I go into sixth grade and I um, talk with them about, um, I, I just asked them to put their fists together. And I said, this is inside your brain. I'm sorry, it's inside your body, you know, weighs about, I don't know, two or three pounds for you right now. So what do you think it is? Kids love to guess and they're kind of being goofy and they're not really under, you know, they're just kind of playing around with that. And so um, they guess. And so we start talking about what's inside of your brain, about 86 to 100 billion neurons. And then I pulled up Kobe Bryant because for sixth grade, that's very powerful. And his death was a year and two days ago. Mm. And so he did a lot of mindful work. He did some um, short documentaries. So for a buy-in for middle school, they watched him yesterday for about three minutes, talk about how breathing anchors him and it gets him out in front of his day and they got it. So then, so that's, so I'm just giving you a really specific example. So we talk a little bit about that. When I go into first grade, um, we put our hands above our ears and we wave at each other. And then I tell them that they are going to say the most fun word in the whole world. It's going to sound so fun and good in your mouth. And so I say amygdala. And then we echo in each other and we go back and forth. And I tell them the amygdala is like fireworks when you're angry and you can't think. And, and then they and they get it. Mm -hmm. So we um, we do the sparkler breath. So you pretend you have two sparklers in your hands and um, sparklers are like when you're upset or worried or angry, your amygdala is kind of like firing sparklers and it shuts down. You can't access this cortex. And so they take it. They pretend they have sparklers. They take a deep breath in. They hold it. They wave their sparklers, you know, like how you do in the summer, mm -hmm. wave them around. And then they take a long extended out breath, which actually activates the parasympathetic like this, mm -hmm. like a snake. And like it, the sparkler hits the water. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, 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 I love this. I love this. I mean, it's so, so critical. And, you know, I even think about um you know, you know, again, you know, what I've, what I've learned about kind of trauma in the brain and, and, you know, the, the amygdala and the frontal cortex and all of that is so critical. And, and, and in education, um, you know, just the, the lesson that can be learned by an educator that when a child is in that fight or flight or in an escalated uh, phase, that they are working from their amygdala and that they do not have access to their frontal cortex. Cause invariably what happens when a child becomes dysregulated and is having a hard time, you know, well-meaning educators may put more demands on them. They may they may ask them to comply with certain things uh, when when they're not they're not able to access that portion of their brain. You know, and, and and just having that understanding is so critical that before you can get to let's let's make decisions and let's let's you know use logic, we've got to cool down the amygdala and and get people responsive. But you know, the fact that you're teaching this to you know to, to you know very young kids. Uh, is fantastic and uh, to educational staff. It, it's really great. Well, thank you, Guy. And and I do want to say that 
the, the, the biggest challenge in our schools, and I think this is true at home too, but collectively in our schools, is that we are trying to use logic and consequences and rewards and stickers when the when the, the adult and the child are in that limbic region of the brain. Mm -hmm. And we don't respond to words and language and logic and rewards and stickers mm -hmm. because we lose our sense of time, our mental um, capacity shifts and our emotions override logic. So when, when I share that with schools and districts, it, that is impactful mm -hmm. because none of us wake up every morning and, and we don't want to go to war with kids. Mm -hmm. um, we get unintentionally um, in that power struggle. We step into the conflict cycle and we don't mean to, but when it happens, it can be devastating mm -hmm. and it grows out of control and, mm -hmm. and no one feels good afterwards. Mm -hmm. So it, Yeah. Yeah. So I want to let people know that, um, you know, we've got a, probably about 10, 10 or 15 more minutes. Uh, so if you have additional questions you would like to ask, uh, feel free to put those in the uh, chat. Um, so I just wanted to make a quick call out to people that might have questions. Beth? Yeah, I was going to say when you were talking about how um, you had the teachers identify three things that, that are, that they like, that make them feel calm. I, I thought, to my, I'm going to bring it back to my own experience. Um, there have been lots of times in my life where I could not identify anything that was calming or soothing. And it, I think it's, it tracks back to a lot to some of the trauma I had in, in my first grade and, and so forth that just built on itself. But I imagine I'm not alone in that, that, that you get so caught up in just do, 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 doing and, and relying on, I relied on the good opinion of others. So I desperately craved other people saying, you're doing a good job. Oh, that's great. You're doing nice. So that is of no value in taking care of yourself. So yeah. have, have you run into that and how have you dealt with it? So absolutely, because without those experiences and awareness as an adult, and if you have not had those regulatory experiences, which I think we have, but we don't have the awareness. Yeah. I think that we know that a hot bath can feel good. I think we know being wrapped in a blanket can feel soothing to us. I think we also know that some music calms us, but we don't stop and we don't wonder or get curious about what our own sensory needs are. So to answer your question, that was part one. Part two, I would like to see more schools create the adults in the building that have resiliency partners with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that um, it, I, we've been talking about, not to, you can't force somebody to do that, but for those people that find it hard to relax through a sensory practice, I think having connection. And so just as we ask our students, are there two adults in the building that you trust, that you feel safe with. I think you need to ask the adults that. Who are the adults in that building that you trust and that you feel safe with? And let's create that connection so that each of you have that, you have access to each other over the next six weeks. Yeah, that, that's great. I, 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 as I recall, you're you're talking or interviewing with Matthew Portell this evening, is that right? 
Yes, I am. Okay. And, and I, I know Matthew does something in their school where uh, they have uh, the ability for educators to like tap out, like if they're getting overwhelmed and uh, need support. And, and that sounds very similar to kind of what they're doing there in terms of trying to support people. But again, the, you know, the, the, all of the, you know, the, the neuroscience based and trauma informed things that we need to apply to our, our kids, we need to apply to the teachers and staff to, to really, to really make improvements. It's no different. Right. Everything that is good for the child or the adolescent is good for us, the adult. Right. right. Uh, I'm going to bring, bring up something here from um, my friend Gail Quigley, who's in Australia and probably watching at a very much different time of the day there. Yeah. Um, and uh, Gail has a, uh, a lot of experience as a uh, principal in uh, schools. She said that, uh, you know, also the adults are in the heat of the moment and, you know, their brains go into that a state as well and shut down and will make irrational decisions as well. So these, these things that affect kids when they're working from their amygdala, the, the no same thing, right, right, right. Same thing can happen to the adults. Yeah. Thank you, Gail. She's absolutely correct. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's no different. And, you know, I was wondering, I, sometimes I thought, wonder what my emotional age is when I'm dysregulated. Um, you know, cause we know that, you know, oftentimes when we are under toxic levels of stress, mm -hmm. Um, that affects, you know, our overall, you know, for students. I mean, we see a, a very different emotional age. And, you know, you might see this big, tall, bearded 14-year-old who is carrying in significant adversity. But you you might see, you know, that those behaviors that you're seeing that he's presenting with, you know, are... I mean, they look more like eight years old, seven years old, you know, especially in a survival state. And one of the things that's so beautiful about this approach is what would be said and what is said all the time to kids is act your age. Why you're acting like a baby. Mm -hmm. So much shame is layered in with the, the traditional kinds of, of discipline. And that's what I like about what you do is that it's so compassionate for wherever you are, it's compassionate for the adults, it's compassionate for the kids. Mm -hmm. and, and one thing I was gonna ask you is, um, have you had any uh, opportunity to share this with mental health professionals other than this, well, in the schools and also in general and pediatricians? Well, not as much as I would love, but yeah. So we do, I've had several groups of, you know, mental health practitioners in the community reach out. And so I have, I would love to do more of that. There is a, I have, um, I've never met her in person because we met during COVID. She lives on the East Coast. She's a pediatrician. Um, and I think she's in Maine or Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Um, but Gretchen is doing a lot of work with being trauma responsive mm -hmm. with parents in her practice. And so she's being very collaborative. And we had a really nice talk several months ago. Um, and I hope to connect with her more in the future because I think it's really going to be important for all of us, um, mm -hmm. you know, to really create those bridges mm -hmm. of community, you know, as, as we move through this. Because this pandemic is going to leave some significant generational um, adversity mm -hmm. and trauma. And th this is not going to go away just because the pandemic is over. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, we knowing that on the front end, 
um, and understanding the impact of that, I think we'll be better prepared. Hmm. So I, I want to piggyback on that a little bit. So, you know, of course, we, we've got your book out there, which is an amazing resource for people, um, as you probably are aware, because I, I know we're, we're collaborating on some of this. You know, our, our concern at the Alliance is we want to see safer schools for the for the students, the teachers and the staff. We want better environments for everybody. So, you know, in our in our organization, um, you know, we are supportive of families, of self-advocates, of educators, of administrators. We want to see improvement for everybody. Um, so aside from your book, of course, you know, uh, I know that you offer a program, a graduate certificate program on neuroscience for educators. Can you tell us more about that program? And, you know, we have educators in our audience and, and people that I would love to encourage to do that. I think I've told you before, uh, at some point when I have time, I would love to go through that certificate program as well. Uh, but tell us more about what you're doing there and, uh, you know, how people can learn more if they're interested. So thank you, Guy, for um, sharing that. And this is just grown beyond my wildest dreams. And we are in cohort, oh my gosh, I think five right now. I'm gonna be, I'm five or six. Um, and we are offering this now hybrid so that people from around the world can take this certification. It changes you personally and it changes you professionally. That is why I love this framework of applied educational neuroscience. It's built on four pillars and it's about it's about how I parent. It's about how um, I partner in a relationship. It's about how I teach. It's about how I lead. It's about how I live life. So the certification are nine um, graduate hours and um, we take everybody in a cohort through a 10 month period. Um, we are learning just exponentially. I don't think that every year it changes. So I invite those who, the alums who have graduated to come back because the science is growing and the application of the science is growing. So um, it is, it really is for parents, for educators. We have administrators, we have business people in the business community, we have mental health practitioners. Um, just, we had a pediatrician. I mean, we have a variety of people that um, have taken this and are taking the certification right now. So um, it really is, oh, I have in my final semester, oh, there's Amy and she is in her practicum right now. So um, sh thank you, Amy, for attesting to this. Yeah, it's, and I'm learning, which is just, you know, every week I'm, I'm saying to them, oh my gosh, this was not on the agenda, but you know, this is, this is, we've got to talk about this. That's so, great. That's great. Yeah. I, I, I love just the idea of applied educational neuroscience. You know, um, uh, of course, you know, Beth has done a tremendous amount of research and, and we were talking earlier about, um, you know, kind of all this coming together um, in terms of, you know, better approaches and, and, and some of the solutions here to some of these problems. Um, but, you know, that, that neuroscience piece is huge. We, we keep talking about kind of the importance of trauma-informed, you know, neuroscience-based, relationship-driven and collaborative approaches. Like, how can we change that model of working with people so we're taking into account trauma, we're taking into account neuroscience, we're building on relationships and we're collaborating. Um, so I, I love the idea of, um, of uh, you know, this, you know, this program that people can learn more. Go ahead. I just got a brilliant idea. I think you should do the class for the leaders, every state leader and the leaders of PBIS.org, the, the national thing. I think everybody um, who's doing that should take your class. I love it. 
And one of the things too, the practicum th that we're in right now. So the graduate students, it's a very non-traditional practicum. They are literally creating um, from their need, from their mm -hmm. passion, from their strength. So we, so these practicums are, we have, um, we have a graduate student who's a middle school principal who is realigning the RISE rubric in Indiana, how we assess teacher effectiveness. And he is creating this rubric um, that is really brain aligned. Um, wow. we, have, we, have, we, we have special education directors and teachers that are redoing BIPs and functional behavioral analysis so that they are brain aligned. I would love to see some examples of those that we might be able to share with people in the community uh, because, you know, th there's a lot of concern, at least, uh, you know, from people that I talk to myself about some of the behavior assessments and BIPs that get put out there that yeah. clearly aren't brain aligned. They're, they're, they're very behaviorism driven. So if you can help facilitate any of those, we'd love to see them and share them with folks as well. Well, and when you two come visit the certification, um, you'll be able to um, see that. So, but I will, I will put that out there because I. Oh my gosh, Laura, thank you. There's the, um, there's the link for the certification um, at Butler. So please, and then everyone can email me, and please um, connect with me through social media too. You can find me at Butler University, um, and please email me, uh, my Butler. Um, I guess we could put it in the chat, right? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. and you have another website as well, uh, correct? Yeah. Um, and would yeah, that be so a good place to, to um, point people? Absolutely. So the website is filled with lots of resources too. It's revelationsineducation.com. Yeah. I'm going to put that link also in the, uh, the chat for people. Um, so we'll, we'll get to a couple final questions here and I know you've got another present or another event this, uh, this evening. Uh, and did you want to mention that to people that might be interested in joining that? Yeah. So please, please come. Thank you, Guy. Um, so the, the principalist, he's just Matthew Portel is just this dynamic principal in, um, Tennessee and he is bringing together Dr. Mona Delahook and myself and Dr. Eric Rawson this evening. So um, that's on my social media. We'll be together at, let's see, 7 p.m. Eastern and then 6 p.m. Central time this evening. I'm gonna share a link to that also. And uh, uh, what, what, what an amazing combination. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I tell you that that's great. And, you know, Mona and Matthew, I mean, just uh, really fantastic. So I did put a link to that in the, uh, the chat if people are interested in doing that. Um, and we're just about running out of time here. So Beth, I always make habit of, of allowing you the last question um, because you usually have one or five that you've, you've or got. But I'm, not <laughs> do, I'm not going to do a question. I'm going to do a <laughs> something that I see a possibility, a vision. And that is that it struck me when you were talking and watching you say it about how you saw these kids and their brilliance. Um, mm -hmm. I think that I have been racking my brain all, all for the last couple of years of how can we show people the error of their ways? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really wanting to say it that way, but to say, to, I've been thinking about how it's so obvious that um, behavior 
behaviorism is not aligned with the brain. Why do all these smart people not get it? But you just run into brick walls that way. And what I see with what you're doing is that the way that this is going to change is when people see such great results and they're going to come and say, how can we do what you're doing? Well, so that's, and that's really what's happening. Um, I think there are several schools that are really, I would call them pilot schools with this framework right now, applied Mm. educational neuroscience. And, um, and that's, that's why it's very important to, for me to be out in the schools continuously. Um, because we, when, when we can walk the walk and then we can share that. And there are, we, or we are seeing a growing number of, we, we have an incredible team that middle school principals, high school principals in elementary that are literally creating um, this type of culture. And it is a culture in their buildings and therefore in the district. Yeah. You, you mentioned pilot program. And one of the things that comes to mind here is um, that may be helpful is um, are, are, are they doing any kind of data collection around these pilot programs? Because, you know, what would be really interesting is to see programs that are put in place and, and see what are the positive outcomes that we get from this that, that can be quantified? Because that's one of the things that we run into is people want practices that they know can be quantified. And I'm sure our, our friend Mickey Marinelli would, would love to see data. She's doing some research on data for other, other ways of, um, you know, handling right. situations. Um, is that anything that's being focused on now or is there potential so, of getting some data yeah. out of? So the school, so there, there, we are collecting data and the data that we're looking at right now is really the discipline data. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, and also some of the anecdotal data, looking at some surveys from the kids, surveys from educators. So we're just starting, but we're seeing gaps. And as my friend and colleague, Michael McKnight always says this, he says, gaps are good. And, and when you see those gaps, um, you know, you can really then look at some of the patterns and begin to break open some of those. So the, it, it, this is a new brand new discipline. So the data is we've got a school in Fort Wayne that's collecting, looking at data, um, but really the discipline data, the number of kickouts, the number of suspensions, the number of referrals, we're looking at those, we're looking at engagement. Um, and so that's that's where, I mean, I, I would love just to have my own data person. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, I would love to have, I would love to have that funding to say, okay, let's just go into these schools and mm-hmm. let's just dig in. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've got one more um, from the uh, from the audience here, again, from Gail in Australia. She said, uh, I'd love to link with you, Lori. I'm doing my doctorate research on the intersection between complex trauma and the invisible disabilities. Uh, and I know she's working with a, a leading expert on trauma in Australia. So, you know, uh, you know, maybe Lori, if we work this right, we can get Gail to invite us out to Australia to, uh, oh, to talk to her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I lived in Australia when I was a, uh, kid uh, for about a year, and I haven't oh. been back since. So you know, Gail, we'd love to come visit you. Uh, sure, absolutely. <laughs> um, hey, listen, this has been really, really fantastic. You know, um, you know, we're we're huge fans of of the work that you're doing, and there there's so much impact. I mean, this this is the future. You know, 
being mindful of neuroscience, being mindful of our brains, you know, moving past the practices that, that we've used, not only as, as parents, but as educators, uh, because we know better. And if we know better, we need to do better. And, and your work is so inspiring. And, you know, as, as Beth pointed out, you're, you're one of the, the kindest and, and most caring individuals. Uh, really you, appreciate all you've been doing in this space and all the support you've been giving to, to educators out there. And thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Guy, thank you so much. And Beth, thank you. And um, yeah, just thank you for the opportunity to continue to seed and share this work. It's fantastic. Well, I'm going to make a couple announcements, but before I do, I just want to thank Beth as well for joining us today. Uh, it's always a, a pleasure to, to do these events with you and uh, I'll look forward to our next one, which I'm going to talk about in a second. And, and actually tell you what, I'm going to go ahead and, and talk about the next segment uh, or our next one, because you're going to both be interested in this. And that is, we're going to be meeting with Yay. Dr. Stephen Porges. So awesome. uh, he's going to be uh, on the show talking about uh, the autonomic physiology. And we're going to talk about the polyvagal theory. Uh, this is work that underlines the, or, you know, underlies the work that you're doing and people like Mona Della Hook. So we've got uh, another great event in two weeks planned. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe you can join us or, or watch that after, the, after the fact. So anyway, um, I'll, I'll just go ahead and thank you all from here. And uh, we will see everybody that's been watching next time. So all thanks right. for joining us. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank Take you. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.